You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Everybody, welcome to the Book of Nature podcast, episode ten. I think it's episode ten. Um, today's topic, as we intimated at the end of our last episode, is the Large Hadron Collider, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But before we do, um, I'd like to introduce uh, my co-host on this podcast. Uh, coming at you from Decorah, Iowa, is Todd Pedler, associate professor of physics in uh, uh, Luther College. How are you doing, Todd? I'm doing just fine. Uh, we just had a cold front run through, so look, and, for, look forward to it, Dan. You're going to get it in a few hours. Well, it went through already oh. for us, too, earlier this oh, morning. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Yeah, yeah just before I woke up, it, it went through about eh, 5 or 6 a.m. or so. Yeah. Yep. Now yeah, we got some rain. It was nice. Oh my goodness! It's it's uh, well, we didn't get much rain, but it is decidedly colder today yep. than it was yesterday. Oh yeah, we yes. dropped twenty five degrees. Yeah, we were well above normal yesterday. We're in the mid seventies, it was uh, humid too. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right, uh, and uh, also coming at us from the Great White North in Karenport, Saskatchewan. Hey, I got it right that time. Is yes, is uh, Charles Hackney? He's associate professor of psychology at Briarcrest College. Woo! I'm batting a thousand. So, how are you doing, Charles? Oh, uh, very busy. Lots of stress. But uh, I've been listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen, so I'm getting through. <laughs> I don't know who that is. You don't know who Leonard Cohen is. And I had a feeling I was going to get that response too. <laughs> oh, Dan. Oh, Dan. I am so sending you links after we're done here. Sounds good. <laughs> what kind of music is it? Where to begin? <laughs> uh, uh, gravelly voiced, yet very reassuring. Uh, I don't know what I mean. Would we call him jazz? Okay, I think I've heard he's, he's of certainly, him. He's jazzy. definitely a vocalist. Yeah. I, I have a heard, jazzy I, vocalist. I have, I've heard of him now. I th- now that you've described him. I think I've I've heard some of his stuff. So okay, well you're about to hear more because I'm I will be sending you links <laughs> after we're done recording. Okie dokie, and listeners, next time maybe you will hear me uh, wax eloquently about Leonard Cohen's music. I don't know. Well, you should because he's brilliant. We will find out. Okay, well, um, and uh, the host uh, for your episode here is Dan Dawson. Is myself. And I am an assistant professor uh, in meteorology at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. And as you um, already heard, uh, we had a cold front come through as well, the same one that hit Todd earlier, uh, on its way to the Atlantic Ocean, bringing some nice cool air behind it. And it was a quite pleasant day today, a little bit windy, but bracing fall day as it should be. 
So, all right. Uh, before we get started on our, on our topic, I think we do have a little bit of listener feedback. Uh, first, I'd turn it over to Charles, who uh, is the de facto curator of our email account. Uh, and uh, I think we have a, an email there, Charles. Yes, we do. Um, listener Matthew emailed us uh, and said, uh, you asked in your most recent episode if listeners would want an episode about statistics. I say yes. There are lots of subtopics you could cover, such as p-values, different camps of interpretation, for example, frequentist propensity, and most intriguing to me, Bayesian, uh, use in your fields, how statistics can get at truth, how they can be manipulated, etc., I would be excited, but make sure it has a snappy title. Don't worry, Matthew. If we're good at nothing else, we are good at snappy titles. Okay, so uh, that's one vote in favor of uh, doing a statistics episode. Um, if anybody wants to uh, chime in, uh, add uh, some support for this motion, uh, speak against the motion, our email address is bookofnaturepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, or find us on Facebook. I don't know, guys. What do you think? Do, I'm, do you think that we can... Uh, uh, I mean, I know we can make a, a snappy title. Can we make an exciting statistics episode? We can certainly give it our best shot. I think... I, I, well, I, I, I'm, I guess I'm the one who sort of suggested it, perhaps. Um, I think we could do it. I, th- I think it would be easy to um, find things to talk about, find even things to dispute about, I suppose. Um, I'm sure we could. I mean, I know in in, uh, uh, psychology uh, there's been some rumblings going on, some people saying that we should uh, um, dump uh, p-values and hypothesis testing completely and all become Bayesians. (laughs) Interesting. I guess you could. You still need to deal with confidence levels, though, and things like that. yeah, I mean, there's a lot at play. So I think we'd have to think about it, but sure. I think we could do it. Sure. And I already know what the title is, but I'm not going to repeat it now. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Have to do it. Oh, boy. We definitely, just to find out what the title is going to be. I mean, you know, there's, I don't remember the exact quote, but there's the statement about, uh, you know, there's statistics and, and there's damn lies. Oh, yes. Yeah. Most famous. Right. Yeah, wasn't that Mark Twain? <laughs> I think so. A lot of things are attributed to Mark Twain. <laughs> okay. But I actually can believe that he said that one. So, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, statistics. We will definitely keep that in mind. Uh, okay. We do have a couple bits of feedback on the Facebook page. We're steadily creeping up in uh, likes on our Facebook page. So, folks, please. Uh, Visit us there. Yes, we have not posted a lot there lately, and we are going to try to remedy that. That's mostly my fault. Um, But uh, since our Pluto episode and our replication episode, we've had a couple uh, Facebook posts, one from David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Um, He said he had a great deal of fun listening to the Pluto episode and uh, then immediately requests an episode titled something like Getting Charles Hackney Started in which all the irritating rabbit trails are followed to their explosive ending. <laughs> so, I think we a lot of episodes have been like that, actually, David. So, um, but no, Charles has held his own, and hmm. you know he's def- he successfully defended his profession a couple times. 
So we got to figure out what, what, what else can push his buttons here. So I don't know. What do you think, Todd? <laughs> oh, oh, let's see. We could do a para- we, we do a paranormal episode. Uh, we could do, uh, let's see, what others, what others, uh, over prescription of antidepressants, ah. uh, or over prescription of, uh, uh, of ADHD drugs. Um, mm. I think that would, I think that might actually start a discussion. I don't know. I don't hear the bear growling over there yet. Well, that, <laughs> the, the, that the one bear I, is restraining that, himself. <laughs> That second one, I might have to weigh in on my uh, for uh, for some personal reasons. So, but we we could we could uh, we could uh, we could certainly talk about such. No, but nobody is going to yeah. dispute the fact that there are legitimate reasons to prescribe such medication. But uh, it's it's the flip side that uh, that I worry yeah. about. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. No, that that actually isn't a bad bad idea. I'll have to think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe maybe we'll do that. Um, you know, if we're scheduled for an episode, but the scheduling doesn't work out, and I don't know, and I'm all alone in doing this, maybe I could just pick an episode that gets me started and just click record and yell at the microphone for about an hour uh, and post that. Okay. Sure. We could have a point oh one. Here we go. Sounds good. All right. Uh, then it's decided. We will have a Getting Charles Started episode at some point. One way or the other. <clears throat> okay, uh, we also have another uh, feedback uh, post from um, Michael Farmer, and this was a specific question, I think, uh, probably in response to our recent replication episode where we talked a little bit about this, but he asked me if in the hierarchy of hardness with math at the top and sociology at the bottom, where do you put meteorology? And I gave him this long, boring answer about why I thought meteorology belonged pretty high up in the hierarchy. But if you don't want to read that, you can just find that XKCD comic where it shows the fields arranged by purity in that case. But you can substitute hardness for purity in there. And all the people lined up with sociology on the left and then all the others saying psychology is just applied I'm sorry, sociology is just applied psychology. Psychology is just applied biology, and so on and so forth. And then way at the far end, you have the mathematician saying, hey, I didn't see you guys all the way over there. <clears throat> so I would place uh, meteorology somewhere where the chemist is in that graphic, and I'll leave it as an exercise to the listener to look that comic up. <laughs> all right. Um, and that would be a good idea in general because it's a great webcomic. It is. I, one thing I do find interesting uh, is that uh, as we've been covering it, uh, as, as we've been talking about this hierarchy uh, a few times, um, the, the, there seem to be different perspectives about what's higher and what's lower. Because every time that I've talked about this hierarchy on the science, I put physics at the bottom of the hierarchy because it is the most concrete. And then the hmm. further up, uh, the, uh, the, the less grounded in uh, physical uh, physical reality and the more abstract hmm. uh, the uh, the subject, but um, but you've got it you've got it the other way around where the the hard the higher the harder. Yeah, I guess it just depends on what what scale you're looking at, what what kind of hmm. metrics you're looking at, where you place different things. So hmm. yeah. I think it's just no one is right or 
It's a function of who's putting it together. Yeah, I that guess too. It, yeah, I mean, that too. Because we and, all know and, the and top the, is better. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, in that case, I may be in trouble because uh, I, I tend to continue the hierarchy further up when I'm uh, talking about it with students. So, well, what, up be, so psychology only ends up being like, you know, fair to Midland. <laughs> well, one thing I pointed out in my response on the Facebook post to Michael was that, you know, this without trying, without making any value judgments, just looking at these, some of these criteria, I would place this and this here. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a judgment of the value of said discipline, but people like to make it that way because we're of human nature. So Right. And the XKCD thing made it uh, a horizontal continuum. Indeed. That's, yeah, I didn't think of that. You're right. That's a good point. Um, okay, well, we better get moving on here because we've got a pretty – Rip Snorton episode coming up here, so we're gonna <laughs> try to go through this pretty. Uh, uh, it, we're just gonna take a flurry, furious uh, approach to this very interesting topic. At least I think it's interesting. So, as I said, today's topic is the Large Hadron Collider. Um, this happens to be the world's largest and most powerful particle accelerator, and indeed the largest, most complex machine ever built by human hands. Nobody wants to contest me on that. I see. Okay. You think I'm going to contest you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted to leave a little bit of silence there. And I was waiting for somebody to say, wait, wait, wait. Hey, listeners, if you think that um, I'm wrong about that, feel free to let me know. But I think it's probably pretty safe to say it's, it's way up there. If it's not the, the, the biggest or most complex, it's way, way up there. Anyway, it lies buried 100 meters underground, straddling the border of France and Switzerland near the city of Geneva. Uh, thousands of some of the most powerful superconducting magnets in the world steer two beams of protons in opposite directions in a nearly perfect vacuum in a giant ring 27 kilometers in circumference. So let that sink in for a minute. 27 kilometers in circumference. So yet those circulating protons are moving so fast, just barely below the speed of light, Something like 0.9999999, I don't know how many nines there, but really, really close. Each proton makes over 11,000 laps each second around that ring. The beams are carefully controlled to sub-micron precision so as to cross each other in a few locations around the ring where giant particle detectors are placed to capture snapshots of the resulting nearly 1 billion head-on proton collisions per second. This makes the LHC short for the Large Hadron Collider, one of the hottest places in the known universe. Each collision briefly reaches temperatures approaching the present, an absurd, min, absurdly, wait, I said, approaching that present at an absurdly minuscule fraction of a second after the Big Bang. But the LHC is simultaneously also one of the coldest places in the known universe, because these superconducting magnets that they use to steer the speeding protons need to be cooled to a temperature of less than 2 degrees above absolute zero by massive quantities of superfluid liquid helium. So both the hottest and coldest place in the, uh, in the, in the universe. The machine consumes approximately 600 to 750 gigawatt hours of energy per year, and so on and so on. I could go on and on and on about any number of a bunch of additional amazing factoids. But hopefully this brief introduction has given you some idea of where we are going in this episode. The LHC is kind of a big deal. 
Okay, so without further ado, let's bring in my cohorts, starting with you, Todd, because I'm sure you've been chopping at the bit, being our resonant particle physicist. Chomp, 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 chomp. <laughs> I gave the G-Wiz promotional-style introduction, but I want you to give us a little bit more background about the science behind the LHC. You might start with telling our listeners what the heck a hadron is anyway, and why we should want to collide them together. I mean... What can such a seemingly crude way of experimenting possibly tell us? I mean, if I want to know how a car works, I don't go around smashing it into other cars, right? <laughs> I look into uh, manuals about the car. I open up the hood. I look at the different things. Why, why do we need to do this um, for, for particles? And why do we need a machine so big to study s- something so small? Hmm. Well, what you've given me, Dan, is the opportunity to rehearse the 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 the, uh, the 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 family discussion around the Thanksgiving table. You know, when when it comes to how things are going, or uh, you know, uh, great aunt, uh, great aunt and uncle want a, a rehash of what what is it exactly you do? Um, indeed, so, indeed. So, <laughs> no, this is good. Um, I'll try to make this fairly brief, although it's hard to to do it justice if I'm too brief. So. Um, you've asked an enormous question, uh, but uh, so be- because I want to try to be clear, I'm not going to I'm not going to scrimp on on details. Um, f- so first, definitions. Um, let's start with the basic basics first. Um, elementary particle physics is generally concerned with studying the basic components that compose the material universe, and at present, a little more than 115 years after. The first hints were obtained that there was something other than atoms reflecting the most fundamental building blocks of the universe. We have something like the following understanding. All matter is, as far as we know, constructed of two broad classes of particles. The first are known as leptons. Um, An example is the electron. And there are two heavier sisters of the electron known as the muon, uh, mu plus on Greek letter mu and the tau, uh, which some, by the way, I, if I could step in here real quick, yeah, yeah. um, I don't know why, but, um, I've always been partial to the muon. It, it's, it's my favorite subatomic particle. <laughs> I just, I just think it's cool. But are you, are you a cat lover, Dan? Um, I, I have cats. I, I prefer dogs. <laughs> they but, go mew. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, so the cows who were all over Norman. Uh, well, well, anyway, yeah. Yes. yeah. Muon. Yeah. No, I, muons are great. Yeah. Uh, continue. Sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the muon is also got a heavier sister called the tau, which is, which is much heavier, uh, tau being another Greek letter. Um, and they otherwise behave like the electron does. Um, those are charged. Each one of those has a neutral, almost massless parter known as neutrinos, uh, one of each type. The second basic class of particles are quarks, uh, which there are six varieties, and they have the whimsical names up, down, strange, charm, bottom, and top in order of increasing mass. Uh, Each type of particle has a corresponding antiparticle. The charged leptons, which are negative, are those which are deemed normal matter, Uh, while those which are positive are the antimatter partners, uh, about which later. Um, Quarks, too, have antiparticles. They're simply called antiquarks. These quarks make up hadrons, so that's what a hadron is. It's one of the types of simple assemblies made up of quarks, either mesons, which are a quark and an antiquark bound together, or baryons, which are a, a trio of quarks that are bound together. 
Uh, mesons have antiparticles too. You just swap out the quarks for antiquarks. And baryons uh, also have antiparticles. They're, they're, they're called antibaryons. And again, you just swap out the quarks for the antiquarks. So there are things like antiprotons. Um, my thesis experiment for my PhD was a, an experiment in which we collided protons with antiprotons and, and, uh, uh, and, and did work um, uh, with the, what, you know, what, what comes of that. The reason uh, the LA. The, the Tevatron? What's that? The Tevatron or Tevatron? Oh, the Tevatron. The Tevatron. No, well, it was it was at it was at Fermilab, but it was not in the Tevatron. The Tevatron uh, is called Tevatron because the energies were one TeV, right? Uh, tera electron volt, um, which we can talk about those energies if if if, if we like. Uh, it's roughly the same energy that the LHC runs at, actually. Just, you know, one-seventh of the old energy, one-fourteenth of the new energy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason the LHC is called the Large Hadron Collider is because it's built to collide either protons with protons, and proton is a hadron because it's made of quarks, uh, or, in fact, uh, what's what's they just switched over to this week now is to running lead on lead, um, so heavy nucleus with heavy nucleus. So it's always colliding hadrons together to do the work they uh, they do there. The electron is is ubiquitous in nature. Um, the positron seems not to be, and this is why. One and the positron is the antiparticle of the electron. Right? It is the antiparticle of the electron. That's correct. Um, this is why negatively charged leptons are called the normal ones because the normal normal matter that we see is 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 all the ones that we call normal matter. Antimatter is something we only see in, generally speaking, only see in experiments or sometimes in cosmic rays. We see, uh, we see antiparticles coming, coming from, uh, out of the sky. Uh, but by and large, the whole universe is, um, is, is full of uh, baryons. Uh, antibaryons seem very rare, and the same is true for, uh, for, for the other antiparticles. I think we could talk a whole lot about the, this matter-antimatter symmetry, or asymmetry, rather, later if you wish, because uh, it does bear on what many folks do in particle physics. Um, there's a deep connection between particle physics and cosmology um, that has a lot to do with this question uh, about why the universe seems to be made of, of this one type and not the other. Um, Another particle class, which really aren't constituents, but which bind the constituents together, are the gauge bosons. So particles that mediate forces, um, they're the exchange particles that are, 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 are exchanged among them. Um, these are photon, uh, the weak vector bosons, the W and the Z, which are very heavy, uh, and the gluon. Um, and, and now the Higgs. Uh, although it's a boson, too, it doesn't mediate a force um, really, but it has another function that we'll be talking about uh, in, in, a, in a later question. Um, from all these particles and all these force carriers, we've been able to construct an understanding of the fundamental building up of matter. Uh, what particle physicists typically are doing now is looking for new arrangements of the quarks. Um, the pentaquark, five quarks, uh, recently discovered at CERN by LHCb, and some seemingly four quark hadrons that I've been directly involved with the discovery of at, at the experiment I work at in Japan. Um, or else we also pin down better the parameters that govern the coupling of the quarks and leptons together by means of the force carriers. There's so much to do, uh, so much beauty to discover. 
um, and, and, and symmetries and, 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 and structural details um, in these little things. So there's so, really a lot. Yeah, go ahead. So I've heard it, I've heard it uh, used as sort of a visual analogy, and I don't know if how, how, how accurate this really is. It's just a schematic of maybe, but of how, how the, uh, the force carrier particles, the bosons, actually mediate the force. Or, and I've heard it put as like you have, say, maybe an electron coming along, and it comes along and meets a positron, and they're flying together, and they interact with each other by means of passing photons back and forth, photons being a type of boson, the particle of light. And so this sort of exchange, like like uh, playing a game of catch or something, mm-hmm. is is how that works out. Um, is, that a, is that a fair way of looking at it, or is it... Uh, it's it's more... not bad. It's it's it, it it works to at least give the idea of how an exchange of particles could possibly give rise to um, a f- a force between two things which are exchanging these particles. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it works it works very well for repulsive forces. Not so it, much for when they're the, attracting. Yeah. Yeah. Although there there it, it works perfectly well if you if you have a particular understanding of what can happen. Sure. Um, but you know for repulsive forces, yeah. You take two kids on a skateboard. You 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 have one throw a medicine ball to the other. Um, the you know the one is going to recoil mm-hmm. after it's thrown, and the second one, when catching it, will also recoil or scream out in pain <laughs> where it hits. Um, but uh, you know that's that that that's a not a bad illustration. Um, it's better to talk about them about forces in terms of fields, and and again we'll talk about that later too. But there's a deep connection between the fields of the strong force, the fields of the uh, the electromagnetic force. Um, it's much easier to talk about uh, attraction and repulsion in terms of fields that are generated by the, 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 the particles that are interacting rather than exchange particles. But there is nevertheless a very deep connection between a particle and the field that, that, that also is another manifestation of the same phenomenon. I see. Um, so why? Uh, what about the messiness of the method? You asked about the messiness. Yeah, and, and why? It's, why do we need the the, mach- the machine to be so yeah. big? Yeah. Well, so messiness. I mean, I, it, seemingly crude. I'm glad you said seemingly because I think those of us who work in particle physics would say it's anything but crude and anything but uh, uh, messy. Um, certainly, there are some that have said, and I've said it myself in, in joking. Uh, that elementary particle physics is a, is a means of studying matter that's very much like studying Swiss watches by smashing them together. Um, <laughs> but that that's a pretty silly analogy. It fails on many, many levels. Um, it's much cleaner to study physics using using a well-known initial state. In my case, it's a state of electron and positron that are colliding together at a known, very precisely known energy, very precisely known place where the two come together. Um, it's much easier to do that than it is to try to hunt around for things to look at by some other means. Um, most of my what I've studied in my career would never be seen in nature at all. So we have to construct the situation we wish, wish to study um, yeah, in order to study the physics we want to investigate. And we can draw conclusions um, that are applicable to everyday matter because of certain symmetries between the kinds of particle states that we study and the states of normal matter. Because they're, they, they are largely symmetric. The strong force, for instance, doesn't know whether I'm talking about heavy quarks that I work with or the quarks that make up protons that make up you and me. So we, we can make 
we can make conclusions by making a very special yet very precisely known initial state. Um, so the name Atom Smasher is very bad. <laughs> it's, it's pretty inaccurate. We're not smashing watches, but we're instead what we're doing is precisely guiding two particles to collide at a very, very well-known energy and at a very, very well-known position. I mean, the precision of guidance of these beams is incredible. Um, and, and for our experiment, the, the, the new incarnation of which is coming online in a couple of years in Japan, we're not just talking submicron. We're talking about nanometer-sized beams on nanometers. So we're throwing, we're throwing together two needles, a pair of sewing needles, and slamming them together at the speed of light, never missing an exact point-on-point direct head-on collision. Try to figure that one out. I mean, that, yeah. it is, uh, and, and they're needles whose points are are a few nanometers on a side. So we have to guide these things that precisely. Remarkable. So it's it's really clean, um, as it were, and it needs to be. We need we need the precision. Why big machine? Well, here's the, here's the, the 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 short version of of what I sort of had intended to say. I don't want to go on for another 15 minutes, even though it would be easy to do so. There's an inverse relationship between energy and distance, distance scales that you can probe. If you want to look at a surface of a solid, you want to do it with a, the wavelength, if you want to look at it electromagnetically with light or, or something, um, you know, some other electromagnetic radiation. You want to do it, if you want to look at very fine details, you want to do it with light whose wavelength is approximately the size of those details that you want to study. Um, sure. Well, particles also have a wavelength. They have a wavelength that goes inversely like the momentum of the particle. This is known as wave-particle duality. It would be associated in name with Louis de Broglie, uh, a French physicist of the early 20th century. Um, Gives a rise to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Or it's at least intimately related with it, yes. Um, Yeah, I I misspoke, yeah. So, no, no, I mean, it it, it doesn't give rise to it, but you you would, the the two are very intimate. You can use that to understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Absolutely. Certainly the inverse relationship between wavelength and and momentum. Mm -hmm. Um, So when quarks were first discovered, they were discovered with electron beams being directed to hit nuclei or to hit actually nuclei of hydrogen. So they were directed to hit protons. And in order to find out if there was structure inside the proton, those electrons had to have an effective wavelength that was of order of the size of the features which would be inside the proton. So it has to be sub-femtometer wavelengths. That means it has to be relatively large energy. If we want to if we want to do collisions at the LHC, which are not really collisions of proton on proton, but they're really collisions of quark on quark within the protons, the beams have to be accelerated to a very high energy, again, a, a high enough energy so that the quarks really manifest themselves. And those quarks are really, 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 really small. So we need really, really, really high energies. That's one reason. Another reason is some of the things that uh, some of the things that we're uh, studying uh, at the LHC are phenomena that will only manifest themselves um, in interactions of a relatively high energy as these these are. So the energies that we're talking about at the LHC, it's the highest energy collider in the world. Um, I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember in this last run that, that has been going on for the uh, past, um, well, many, many months, more than a year. Um, 
If it's 14 TeV, uh, I mean, that's the top design energy, 14 tera electron volts. That's 14,000 times the mass of a, of a proton. Um, so really, really, really quite high energy. Needed both for um, the fact that we're we're dealing with uh, you know, we're dealing with phenomena that require us to be probing very very small distance scales, um, or also equivalently um, uh, phenomena that require us to go to to very high energies. Um, We'll talk more about the biggest discovery in the last few years uh, 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 in, a, in a bit, so I'll cut that off there if you guys want to give me any feedback or questions. Uh, that's a great, great introduction. Um, so basically, in order to get at these very high-energy um, collisions, you need to accelerate these protons up to speed, which means you need a gigantic ring with lots of magnets to steer them and and just accelerate them. And you spin them around until you get their energy up, and then you direct them to collide. And the higher the energy, the the smaller the length scale, the smaller that -hmm. you can probe. Um, Also, uh, you can, uh, if I understand this right, and uh, being a non-particle physicist, I only have a cursory understanding of this, but Basically, that goes hand in hand with the the energy that you're putting into this collision can be converted to uh, the mass of new potentially unobserved particles as long as the the amount of energy that that particle has um, is equal to or less than the energy that goes from the kinetic energy of the two colliding particles. So right, right. That's that, and that's that's true, and that's that's an important point. Although I, I, I should say that also what's just as important is the intensity of the beams. So the, beam, the intensity of the beams is related to the number of – I mean the intensity of the beams is related directly to the number of collisions per unit time. Right. And for very rare stuff, you need to make a lot of the initial state. You need to collide many, 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 a billion collisions per second. You need to have that many in order for you to be able to get out those things that happen only very infrequently. I see. So that's that's another reason why they need to be these these machines need to be very very large. Got it. Um, yeah, and and really, you know, the the I I, th- I don't think we're going to build much bigger machines. There there is well, and I guess that you're going to touch on that too. Yeah, I think that's uh, coming up later on. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We'll hold off from that then. Oh, no problem. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'd like to bring Charles into this because he's been patiently waiting in the wings here. Um, so the next question I have is on you, Charles. Uh, can you give us a brief history of the LHC? When was it conceived? Um, there's also this uh, ill-fated superconducting supercollider that was to be built in Texas. Maybe you can talk about that if you want. Um, how long did the LAC actually take to – did it take to build it? How much did it cost? Um, if you read enough articles about the LHC, you will find relatively frequent mention of the word cathedral in reference to both its size and the long, difficult process of building it. In what ways do you think is the LAC similar to medieval cathedrals, which took decades or even centuries to build? And in what ways is it different? And one article in Popular Science describing the LAC suggested that while the ancient cathedrals were built to reinforce worldviews, the LHC and other modern-day scientific marvels or instruments or what have you are instead built to shatter them. It's kind of a cheeky cheeky rhetorical statement, but uh, how accurate is that? What do you think? So, 
Well, Several questions. Uh, yeah. Well, to begin with, I'd say that uh, the writer for Popular Science doesn't know what the word worldview means. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could. I mean, we we could take this at a bunch of levels. I mean, worldviews could be sure. seen as similar to Thomas Kuhn's uh, widely misused term paradigm, uh, which specifies a basic set of assumptions that structure an entire field of study, including what is to be studied, what kinds of questions are allowed, what methods are acceptable, and the testing of hypotheses can only take place within an established paradigm. And successfully testing a hypothesis is an act of reinforcing a worldview. And e- even if we grant that. Uh, observations made uh, using the LHC could trigger a paradigm shift, which would be awesome. Uh, that doesn't justify yeah, the, the cheeky phrasing as sort of an either-or thing. I mean, we'll, we'll talk later Indeed. about the discovery of the Higgs boson. Uh, but uh, you know, connected to this point, that discovery supported the standard model. It was a reinforcement of a paradigm, not a shattering of it. And, and if we take the term worldview more broadly, uh, meaning a, a, like an overall philosophical disposition toward the world, then that statement makes even less sense. Uh, whatever observations are made during the uh, the LHC, they, they'll they'll be interpreted as supporting uh, worldviews like the liberal progress narrative or the Whiggish triumphant vision of uh, scientific progress. So no worldviews are being threatened by the LHC. Uh, so yeah, what was in that 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 particular comment in the article was just kind of a lame attempt to toss in a cheap science versus religion shot. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe mm-hmm. I, I was, uh, uh, I just zeroed in on that one statement. It was just one out of what was an otherwise really interesting article. So maybe it was being a little yeah. bit unfair and singling that, that sentence out, but it did strike me. So I thought I'd ask your opinion on it. Possibly. And yeah, uh, uh, it was a, it was a good article and I actually will, will be quoting from it uh, at a little bit of length later on. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe Great. maybe we can add the word worldview to things that you know set Charles off, <laughs> sort of a thing. So yeah, anyway, I, should, I should go on with to the actual historical stuff. <coughs> okay, so uh, yeah, so the uh, the Large Hadron Collider is it is a massive particle collider. It is the largest single machine in the world. It is the largest experimental facility in history. Uh, it was built over a 10-year period uh, between 1998 and 2008 uh, by CERN. So, uh, listeners, that's C-E-R-N, which stands for some French words uh, that translate as European Organization for Nuclear Research. Uh, the LHC is located near Geneva, tunnel uh, buried some uh, 500-something feet underground, uh, and it is freaking huge. Uh, it is also freaking expensive. The, uh, the LHC is one of the most expensive scientific instruments ever built, uh, with a budget of $9 billion, uh, as reported in 2010. Um, as for the, the timeline in the history, the, the idea for the LHC uh, is generally considered to have gotten started in March of 1984 uh, at a workshop held at Lausanne, Switzerland. The original idea was to build the LHC as an addition to the already planned uh, uh, large electron-positron uh, collider. Um, which that uh, They started building that in 1985, and that operated uh, from uh, 1989 to 2000. Uh, and their conceptual drawings with uh, the you know, one set of rings built, basically piggybacking on top of the other one. Uh, but instead, uh, the LEP was dismantled uh, to make way for the LHC, uh, uh, which was built using the same uh, set of tunnels. <coughs> uh, now, as you mentioned, uh, yeah, there was there was another one, another possibility. Uh, because everything is bigger in Texas, uh, there was a set of uh, separate set of plans uh, proposed for a bigger collider. Thank you, President Reagan. Um, it's called the Superconducting Super Collider, uh, which had been given uh, nicknames like the Desertron, 
which, which sounds, is an sounds awesome like a great Transformers right villain. Super conducting, super collider. It just it just rolls off the tongue. It does. Well, you know, yeah, Desertron. 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 Transform and roll out. <laughs> so yes, uh, that was going to be built uh, near Waxahachie, Texas. Uh, construction started in 1991, uh, but the project was scrapped in 93 when it started to look like the SSC was going to be very expensive and difficult. Thanks a bunch, multiple factors that made the project collapse. <laughs> I mean, well, to be fair, uh, when you budget for a $4.4 billion project and costs end up going uh, over $11 billion, yeah, it That's might be time to sit down and you know, have a serious talk about where our relationship is going. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, been looking at that International Space Station. Uh, anyway, uh, so the uh, the CERN Council... Yeah, there's a couple other things out there that we could talk about that are going over budget, like James Webb Telescope, but that would get us too far afield, so... Yes. <laughs> Indeed, so... So, yeah, anyway, yeah. And so the, the, the CERN Council approved uh, construction of the LHC in uh, 1994... Uh, and the design, uh, the design was published in 1995, and away they went. Until they happened to unearth a 4th century Roman ruin while preparing the worksite. At that point, everything comes to a screeching halt, and archaeologists are immediately airdropped into Switzerland for six months of full-contact excavation. Then it's back to work. On July 20th, 2008, the last piece of equipment was lowered into the tunnels and installed, and on September 10th, 2008, the LHC was officially started up. At 10.28 a.m. September 10th, a beam of protons went around the 27-kilometer loop. The protons, the protons were interviewed afterward, and they reported feeling scared at the time, but also exhilarated to be part of the event. Uh, later in October, the Japanese Vice Minister of Science and Technology celebrated the LHC inauguration by painting an eye on a doll's face. After that, there have been particle beams and more particle beams. Uh, the LHC shut down in uh, 2013 for some upgrades and started back up again um, better than before in April of this year. <coughs> now, the, the, the cathedral connection... Uh, you know, it does refer to our tendency to uh, use that term uh, mostly to designate any large and impressive church building rather than the actual definition, which involves the church being the base of operations for a bishop. Uh, examples of that include the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove, California, and the Arctic Cathedral in Tromso, uh, Norway, uh, neither of which are actually cathedrals, but both of which are called cathedrals, uh, except since the Crystal Cathedral went bankrupt, and uh, last I read, it has been uh, purchased by uh, the Roman Catholic Church and may actually turn into an actual cathedral. Anyway... <coughs> Like the LHC, cathedrals are large and they are impressive, uh, expensive, taking a considerable amount of time to build. Uh, Durham Cathedral in England, for example, uh, took 40 years to build, uh, while Notre Dame took 90 years to build. Uh, the Hagia Sophia in Constantinople took only six years, and that turned out to be a huge mistake since the rushed schedule meant shoddy construction and a collapsing roof. Thank you, narcissism of Emperor Justinian. Uh, so on those terms, the LHC certainly possesses the extended construction time, uh, the great cost, and uh, the massive collective effort uh, stretching over uh, uh, you know, more than one person's career um, that had been expended in the building of cathedrals. Now, in terms of function, uh, the LHC is not likely to be a major center for prayers or the dissemination of music, but as cathedrals were also intended to be centers of learning and instruction, the argument might be made that at least one function is shared between the two. Interesting. 
Okay, great, Charles. Thanks for that synopsis. That's really interesting. I actually didn't know about this uh, rune that was found, and they had to stop construction. So that was, that was news, new to me, actually. So that was quite interesting. And regarding the interviewing of the protons, I actually uh, hear that there's one, one of the protons, at least one of them, has a Twitter handle. So you might want to <laughs> check that out. So I'm not even joking. Yeah. It's there. Look it up. LHC Proton. At okay. LHC Proton. Okay. All right. Well, let's move on. Um, Todd, back to you. Sometime in 2011, I was taken by what I can only describe as particle fever. So that happens to be the title of an excellent documentary on the LHC. And listeners, I highly recommend to go find a copy and watch. It's very good. Very well made. But anyway, I just, I don't know what started all this, but I just started getting really interested in particle physics and the LHC operations. I started reading all kinds of blogs and rumors that I had found evidence of the last penising piece of the so called standard model of particle physics. On July 4th, 2012, I literally stayed up to the wee hours of the morning live streaming the announcement of the discovery of the Higgs boson since it was made over in Europe and uh, on GMT time. So that's late in the night where, mm-hmm. where I lived. So mm-hmm. I'll have to admit that I got a bit choked up when I saw Peter Higgs, um, he of the Higgs boson, who was the first to predict the existence of the particle half a century ago. And mm-hmm. he was given a standard ovation. He got a little teary-eyed himself. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. I'm watching this happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us a bit about this particle and its significance. Why did one physicist inf- infamously feel the need to call it the dramatic music god particle <laughs> one of the dumbest things i've ever heard um yeah why well let's let's first um i mean i watched it too uh it was exciting uh to to see the first results although i i guess through the channels that i have available to me i knew this announcement was coming you know for a very long time so um it was a little anticlimactic but nevertheless uh, the Higgs thing uh, that was that was that was definitely cool uh, for for him to be there. It was really you know it was very difficult to get tickets to actually be present. Uh, you know the, the number of physicists working at, at CERN is is huge, and uh, that auditorium, even though it's a big one, uh, not nearly enough. So standing room only, I I, I, I think. Um, yeah. So uh, first, a, a caveat, I guess the Higgs is important. Um, its discovery is hard to interpret, though, in, in terms of any of a number of Higgs-inspired models. So we say the Higgs boson, but it's one it's one particle, as far as we understand it. Uh, which particular model it is it is uh, you know it most it most correctly describes its physics is is totally unclear. Um, so, I mean, it's consistent with several different models. So part of what the CERN experiments are doing now is studying the decay properties of the Higgs and possibly associated production, which means the production of a Higgs plus something else. That'll help tease out which Higgs models are viable and which ones are not. Um, is it a singlet? Is it a single particle? Are there multiple Higgses? This one is neutral. Are there charged Higgses? There's a lot of different models um, that, again, aren't usually in the public view. We sort of think of the Higgs as a, a single particle, and now the case is closed. It's hardly closed. Um, 
Other experiments like my own experiment in Japan are able, with the help of the CERN observation that was announced in 2012, to look for hints of Higgs production in other processes. Some very, very interesting measurements we can make that look for either the evidence of Higgs in completely unrelated decays of hadrons or for Higgs partners that uh, some of the models again predict. Um, now, a very brief sketch of the, of the reasons why the Higgs is an important discovery. Um, in the standard model of particle physics, there is no explanation. <laughs> By explanation, I mean no physical basis, no physical understanding in terms of a model for the mass that different particles have. Uh, different particles, quarks, leptons, bosons. They're all massive particles with the exception of the, well, no, I mean, the, with the exception of the photon. Photon's the only one that we would call a massless particle. Um, all gluons, the others have, right? Gluons are massless. Uh, well, so gluons are massless. Yes, gluons are massless indeed. Um, I should know. I studied the dang thing. <laughs> but uh, never, nevertheless, um, thinking in terms of the quarks and leptons uh, for certain, um, they don't have – there's no basis for those. They're just parameters in the model. Um, and in theoretical physics, the fewer parameters, the better. Uh, the more parameters, more free, arbitrarily settable parameters that you have, the more flexibility you have. But the uh, there, there, there are problems associated with having so many free parameters. Um, there can be so many parameters that in principle you can almost – create some kind of cookbook ad hoc model um, rather than one that really explains what's going on. So in other words, they have to put in the, the, uh, the masses of the particles by hand into the equations of the model, the standard exactly. model. You, they're, they're not, they don't come naturally out of the equations. You have to say, oh, Absolutely. the electron is this mass. Exactly. And you plug and, it in. You know, it's a measured, yeah, it's a measured quantity, but it's a, it's a free parameter. There's not an, there's not an a priori mass predicted right. for, okay. the, for the electron. Um, one thing that Enrico Fermi once said to Freeman Dyson, um, these are two real giants in the field, um, uh, was the following. So, so Dyson, as a, as a young physicist, came to, to Fermi with some work that he and a colleague had done, and Fermi asked Dyson how many free parameters there were in the model uh, that he was using. And Dyson replied, well, there are four. And um, Fermi replied to this that Dyson needed to go back to the drawing board. There's too many arbitrary parameters. Uh, he then proceeded to tell Dyson uh, a story about another physicist, John von Neumann, who um, uh, is also a giant uh, in the field. He, the, it, Neumann, von Neumann had said to Fermi once, give me four parameters and I can fit an elephant. Give me five and I can make him wiggle his trunk. Um, so, 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 so many arbitrary parameters. In other words, you can approximate a very complex function without really understanding it, without really having any reason for the values that those parameters take on. Um, so, with the the particles of the standard model, we've got twelve leptons and quarks. Um, and at the time before the Higgs, uh, a, a, an additional uh, an additional four bosons. And you got four more parameters: the gravitational constant, the electromagnetic, sorry, the electron charge, Planck's constant, uh, and the speed of light. So you've got a total of 19 masses. The photon again having no mass, although I suppose maybe you could argue that the fact that it's zero uh, is arbitrary. But but no, in fact, in in the standard model. Uh, every par particle naturally would have zero mass. You'd have to add mass to it to 
um, uh, again, because he got no reason for mass until the Higgs. So, um, you know, if four parameters is too many for Fermi, then 19 is is right out. Um, so Higgs' model, Higgs's model was one that was an attempt, it was constructed as an attempt to come up with a mechanism that could explain all the masses. Um, as I said earlier, exchange particles are associated with fields, the photon and the Z and the W, uh, with the electroweak force, the, the the joining, the unification of the electrical or electromagnetic and weak nuclear forces, uh, which are unified in some sense theoretically, and the gluon, which is associated with the strong, um, are the exchange particles, but are sometimes better thought of in terms of field, better to think of the electromagnetic field. We, we talk about that all the time. Um, you can think of a weak field and a strong field within the nucleus as well. So particle and field are sort of the same thing, differently manifested. What Higgs asked was, what, is the, what if there's a field that gave rise to mass? Um, think of it this way. Um, you know, mass is, uh, in some ways... Uh, the resistance to acceleration. It's inertia, in other words. Um, so what if there was this field uh, through which it was you know, d- varyingly difficult to get these different particles um, to accelerate? There was an inertia that was related. Just think of a, a dragging a ball through a, a, a tub of caro syrup. Um, very viscous, very, you know, there, there's a, you, you can accelerate it, but it, you, it, it takes a lot to accelerate it. That's kind of the way that he envisioned this field that would cause different particles to um, have a different ratio of the force applied to the acceleration obtained. That's what mass is, right? Uh, as, as, as anyone who studied physics knows, um, they all learn it as F equals MA. I like, I like to think of it in terms of as A equals F over M. But nevertheless, M is a parameter. Mass is a parameter that links the amount of acceleration you get for the force that's applied. So suppose this field gives rise to that mass, um, uh, that mass term. Um, that, that, that's kind of the picture that he envisioned. And this field then would be associated, it could also be alternately manifested as a particle. And that's the Higgs. So there were predictions about uh, predictions made by Higgs and by others who followed about how the Higgs, if it exists, how it could decay, which tells us about its coupling to matter, which gives rise to understanding about the mass that a given particle has, and so forth. Uh, the discovery in 2012 of that Higgs, again, which in, in the initial discovery was discovery to de- uh, decaying to two photons or else to heavy quark pairs like the bottom quark uh, and bottom antiquark, um, those, that discovery simultaneously seen by different experiments was the key. We've got to fix at least on a particle that is consistent with several of these Higgs models. Um, so we've got one piece of the Higgs puzzle. Although there's a lot to be left to be seen now, why did Leon Letterman, the the Nobel winner, uh, 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 why did he call the Higgs the God particle? Uh, it, it's kind of annoying um, in some in, in in some sense. I think he was. I mean, he actually kind of made it in jest, from what I understand from subsequent interviews. Um, but it's it's a particle that um, it, it, it's it's. Its importance is so great because it cleans up an immense lack in the standard model. Um, 
he would also perhaps say that it ha- you know its presence or the presence of the Higgs field is responsible for much of the way that matter came to be in the universe. So he's he's giving a nod to this sort of uh, creative aspect um, for the Higgs field. Um, it's an overreach. It's a bad overreach. Um, I think most people sort of refer to it as the God particle mockingly and not because they mock religion per se. Sure. Uh, but because it's just sort of a silly title. Um, I know Christians in the field and non-Christians alike think it's a dumb it's just a dumb. Yeah, I, I have a I have a good friend of mine, also a, a Christian particle physicist, um, who who has the same exact attitude as that. I hesitated to even bring that up, but I, I just I had to know what you thought about that. It's in popular parlance. Yeah, and I'm sure you could have guessed what I would think. Yeah, about it. <laughs> I, I, I guessed, but I'm glad you confirmed my it's, my suspicion. It's incredibly important. Yes. I mean, I I, I must say it's, yeah. it, it, it's and it's, it was incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, but I also. Um, you know, I look at it this way, too. Um, it, while it may give us a physical basis for how mass arises, um, it, it seems to me that I'm not sure we've gotten rid of the arbitrariness of the standard model, though, because now you've got 19 couplings to the Higgs field. Well, aren't those arbitrary? Yeah, it doesn't tell you. It tells you maybe how the particle that, that the particles can get mass, but doesn't tell you why the electron gets this mass and the muon right. gets that mass and and so on at least that's yeah. how my understanding um so it's still you're still left with that problem uh i think that's accurate i mean i i you know the electron charge um which is one of these free parameters uh which is not dealt with in the the higgs uh by the higgs the higgs only deals with the mass so the 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 mass of the of the 15 massive uh fundamental particles um you know, the electron charge it tells us about the strength of the electromagnetic interaction. Uh, it's a free parameter. It's an arbitrary parameter. Uh, it's a coupling constant. So you still have to have coupling constants for all these particles, which, which are, are the things that were most directly related to the mass. So I'm not sure we freed ourselves of, mm. the, of 15 arbitrary, particle, uh, arbitrary uh, uh, parameters. But there you go. That's for others to dispute about, not me. Yeah. Great. Uh, before we move on, I just wanted to make one comment. You've been talking a little bit about uh, particle decays, you're talking about the Higgs decaying into different particles. One thing I think that maybe might be important to mention to the, re- uh, to the listener that may not understand these things is that most of the particles that we've been talking about in the standard model are actually unstable and that they, they don't last very long as, a, as an individual particle and they immediately decay or break up into uh, other particles that are less mass than they are. Um, and the only ones that are stable are the ones that are we are familiar with that make up our, the matter of our bodies and all, all objects. So that would be like the electron um, and uh, the uh, up and down quarks. Um, and the rest of them that are cousins to those, like the muon or the strange or the charm and top-bottom quarks, whatever, those are all unstable and so is the Higgs boson. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong there, uh, Todd, but I just wanted to, uh, to, to uh, bring that up to, to say why we have to – we don't actually observe the Higgs boson when we create one mm-hmm. in the particle experiment. We, we, we create one at an almost absurdly small fraction of time, decays into other particles, and we figure out that there was a Higgs boson there by carefully constructing 
what it fell apart into. Right. Well, what you can uh, the the easiest the easiest way to d- describe this. Yeah, and and first of all, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, everything decays down to the lightest possible, um, the lightest possible state, if, if you will. Um, the proton is the only stable baryon. The, the, there are neutrons in nature, but they have a lifetime of about 15 minutes. Yeah. Uh, if they're free, uh, they they will decay that way. Um, so you know, uh, so I guess within nuclei, neutrons are 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 are, are absolutely stable. Um, and you know, the quarks themselves. Uh, I didn't mention this before, but quarks are never observed isolated. They're always observed only in these combinations, which until the last couple of years, we would have said were only mesons and baryons, only the quark-antiquark bound state and the three-quark or three-antiquark bound state. Um, again, we've since we've observed these four-quark objects, we've observed the pentaquark now. Um, so there are some other stable, well, they're not stable. I mean, there are other arrangements, other possibilities. Um, but the quarks themselves, yes, they everything that's got a strange quark in it will eventually decay down to something that's got up and down by the weak interaction, by by means of something which takes a long time to decay, but will eventually decay. Um, and so in particle of physics, what we do observe, yeah, we have to reconstruct particles from their decay daughters. Um, by a careful summing up of uh, of the energy and momenta of those particles, we can we can figure out what gave rise to them. And so the observation of the Higgs is the observation of the the bump in a spectrum. Uh, it's this is way too simplistic, but it's the observation of a bump in a spectrum of mass calculated for the pair of photons, let's say, that are observed in the experiment. Um, we get a clump or a bump of, of events that have a mass that are very close to a, a, particular, um, uh, a particular mass value. Uh, again, there are other things that go on. You can't just you know, make a claim of discovery in every bump that you see in a spectrum. Um, but, but for the, you know, the, the quick and short uh, explanation, yeah, that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. We're reconstructing these particles by observing their decays. Great. Okay, um, let's uh, move on. Um, so I'm going to take an about face. We've been getting really into uh, the uh, deep uh, scientific explanations of these things, but I'm going to turn it more uh, philosophical and theological here. Uh, Charles, uh, what are your thoughts about why fundamental physics and cosmology in particular are so likely to be surrounded by metaphysical and theological language and feeling? Um, I know that's a really vague question, but I, I, I hope you know what I mean by that. Um, and from a Christian perspective, on the one hand, it seems to me that at least the drive that scientists have, and we've talked about this some in previous podcasts, it occurs to me, ha- that at least the drive that scientists have to unlock the secrets of the universe can be seen as an outpouring of the image of God within within human within humans the human soul. So do you agree with that? And then on the other hand, to what extent could we be deluding ourselves into thinking we have or will become masters of the universe through the knowledge gained by the LHC and similar scientific tools? So I'm, 
probably not putting this the best way possible, but uh, I have in mind the hubris demonstrated by the builders of the Tower of Babel in Genesis. God wasn't too terribly happy with their efforts, and we all know how that turned out. It, I've always been uh, interested in that story because it seems like, well, these, they were just building this big tower. What's wrong with that? They were, you know, but um, is it possible that if the builders had had a more humble attitude that God instead would have blessed their efforts? In other words, was it not so much that they were building this big giant tower to reach into heaven, but rather that their attitude about it was that they would be somehow the kings of creation or what have you. So I guess to sum up what I'm asking about here is if, is there any lesson in that here for scientists today, whether we be believers or non-believers? And in other words, how can we boldly live out our calling as scientists while simultaneously maintaining a humility in the face of a universe and God, for that matter, that may forever be beyond our complete understanding. So. All right. Uh, well, I mean, speaking as a fan of uh, horror movies, uh, I have plenty to say about the possibility that our attempts to become masters of the universe through science can end up biting us pretty hard in the backside. Uh, I'm reminded of the uh, the final line from the 1957 Michael Landon movie I Was a Teenage Werewolf. It's not for man to interfere in the ways of God. Now, contrasting wow. that, uh, yeah, great movie. Yeah, that is a great quote. It's, Funny it that comes quote. from the movie. That, what was it again? I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Okay. Yeah, which also got... Uh, uh, turned into one of the best episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Ah, uh, yes, that's where I yes. remember hearing it from. Okay, I probably watched the MST3K version and not the uh, the unriffified uh, or whatever version. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It would take a special kind of person to subject themselves to the un-MST3K version of that, uh, that movie. Anyway, <clears throat> so... Uh, Anyway, contrasting this idea that it is not for man to interfere in the ways of God uh, is the attitude of uh, those of us who actually do believe in God and uh, who see our attempts to understand and influence the universe uh, as uh, an outworking of the creation mandate, uh, uh, rule the earth and subdue it, Uh, our our role as co-creators alongside God is another common um, way of understanding this, Uh, Mm -hmm. and an expression of worship uh, toward the creator. We've talked about this before. Uh, I mean, when I open classes uh, in prayer, um, I, uh, I I start us off uh, with a prayer uh, taken from the uh, the American Book of Common Prayer, uh, and it goes uh, goes like this: it "Goes uh, uh, Almighty and everlasting God, you made the universe with all its marvelous order, its atoms, worlds, and galaxies, and the infinite complexity of living creatures. Grant that as we probe the mysteries of your creation, we may come to know you more truly." and more surely fulfill our role in your eternal purpose. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Uh, so, yeah. Um, great. Yeah, and, and great, uh, great. At, at some point in a previous episode, I believe one of us mentioned Psalm 111.2, uh, Greater the works of the Lord, they are studied by all who delight in them. Uh, so I would respectfully disagree with the makers of I Was a Teenage Werewolf and say that it is definitely our job to stick our noses into the things of God and try to figure out what's going on here. Uh, Amen. As yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, with the Tower of Babel thing, I mean, uh, I, I would agree that it's not that uh, they they built a big tower; it's that they built a big tower because they were going mm-hmm. to take over the heavens and 
become gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't I know. Could just, I could throw in Francis Bacon here, right? I mean, okay. which which we go. Well, we we go. I love back, bacon. We <laughs> mm, bacon. <laughs> bacon makes everything better. Yes, <laughs> that's right. As long as it's not Roger Bacon. Uh, ah, yeah. No, but you know, he, we we and we brought this out in the very first episode, right? Of Book of Nature. I mean, it's a quote from which we get the name. Right. Um, uh, or uh, or a, a, a parallel or a, a synonym for the name. I mean, so this is from his essay, Advancement on Learning, or Advancement of Learning. Um, to conclude, therefore, let no man out of a weak conceit of sobriety or an ill-applied moderation think or maintain that a man can search too far or be too well studied in the book of God's word or in the book of God's works divinity or philosophy, but let, rather let men endeavor an endless progress or proficiency in both. And by God's works there, he's talking about creation, about nature, about the things that are around us. Um, I knew, I, knew I, I keep, there's a reason I keep coming back to this sort of question every, almost every episode. Yeah. It's just, it's really on my mind. And so, sure. yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. That fits quite well into that. Sure. All right. All right. So it's interesting that, uh, that, that you mentioned the Tower of Babel. Um, so um, <coughs> uh, Leon Laterman um, ac- actually sort of rewrites the uh, Tower of Babel story in, uh, in one of his books. Um, to- it, it, it's interesting. So uh, he, he, he talks about it uh, in terms of the, su- the, uh, the super collider. Um, so, yeah, he says, so, so the way that he puts it, uh, it says, and the whole universe was of many languages and of many speeches. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Waxahachie, and they dwelt there. So you can see which super collider we're talking about here. Uh, <laughs> and they said to one another, let's go to, let us build a giant collider whose collisions may reach back to the beginning of time. And they had superconducting magnets for bending, and protons had they for smashing. And the Lord came down to see the accelerator which the children of men builded, and the Lord said, Behold, the people are unconfounding my confounding. And the Lord sighed and said, Go to, let us go down and there give them the God particle, so that they may see how beautiful is the universe I have made. Um, so yes, the uh, pe- people have had the Tower of Babel on the mind uh, on their mind uh, for a while now uh, in connection with... Uh, these kinds of projects. I don't know what God would have thought of a humble tower of Babel. Uh, if I remember correctly, though, I think we did discuss humility as a scientific virtue back we in episode did. Yeah. six. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as Christians, we, we acknowledge that we are tiny, finite creatures in a very big universe uh, made by a very big God. Uh, and I think that this plays in well with the scientific attitude that our findings are always to be held tentatively, open to possible falsification in the future, and also the expectation that we will never run out of new questions to ask and new territory to explore. Uh, in fact, for many of us, that's one of the things that makes science so much fun. A, a science with no new questions to ask is a dead science, and we like our science alive and kicking. Uh, for for our non-believing friends, uh, I would uh, remind everyone that we don't have to believe in God to acknowledge that we are tiny and finite beings in a very big universe, and that we are stuck doing our thinking with a three-pound lump of ape neurons. <coughs> very good uh, point. Yeah. As for what it is with uh, cosmology and fundamental physics that uh, gets people's theological juices flowing, 
Uh, I'd say it's because uh, the topics addressed in these fields touch on some of the most basic of the, the big picture questions. You know, what is reality? What is it made of? Where did everything come from? I think mean, Martin Heidegger, uh, if I, remember, I, I, I think I'm correct about this one, Martin Heidegger said that the most fundamental question of philosophy is why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, so yeah, the, you know, addressing these kinds of questions, you know, it gets people going. It get, gets people into a philosophical and a theological mood. Uh, and yes, I, I do realize that there is a bit of humor in that I said that we're addressing big picture questions in connection with a particle collider meant to help us examine very tiny things. <laughs> okay. Yeah, great stuff. Um, well, in the interest of time, I'm going to uh, I had two more questions, one for each of you, but I think I'm going to kind of consolidate them and uh, into one uh, one area and have you guys sort of uh, just chime in as you guys see fit. So, I just to wrap things up, I I kind of want to bring it back down to um, the science, at least in some regards. And uh, mm-hmm. what now that we found the Higgs boson, the LHC, um, that was one of the things that it was built for was the idea that we should be able to find the Higgs boson if it's there with this machine. Well, we found it. Everybody's happy. The champagne corks have been released. Um, what do we do now? Uh, hmm. Have we won science, as Stephen Colbert once quipped to physicist Sean Carroll? We can go back to religion now. Um, no, if you guys saw that, but <laughs> it, was, it was a pretty funny... It, it, it's a clip. It's yeah, on. Yeah. Sure so... Okay, so what do we do? Uh, they're, obviously, they're still running the LHC, and they're still collecting data, and they're still trying to refine uh, measurements of the Higgs as well as many other things. Mm. But what, what else are they um, trying to find? I mean, what do they hope to find? First, I want to ask um, uh, Todd what your take is on this idea of new physics beyond the standard model, new particles and forces that possibly may be out there that aren't predicted by the standard model Mm. that anybody knows. Um, Do you think we're going to find something new with LHC or um, Mm. is, are we going to need something even bigger? And if we do need something bigger, Charles, I hear that there are rumors about a huge collider being planned possibly to be hosted by China, could uh, bring energies up to 100 uh, tera electron volts, whereas the LHC runs at a measly 14 tera electron volts. <laughs> um, some are suggesting that it fittingly be called the Great Collider. Uh, see what I did there? Um, uh, but uh, And if so, do you think it's worth mm. doing something like that? If we don't find anything new with LHC, we don't have any real places that... And we know there's other stuff out there like dark matter, but we really have a hard time figuring out what is the best way to go forward to find these things. Do you think it's worth spending billions of money on these, on these uh, mm. giant physics projects in, in, in hopes that we may find something but mm. not knowing for sure, um, whereas we could be spending that money on other things, other more yeah. practical things? So those are two different questions sort of mm. intertwined. I'll let you guys uh, answer those as you see fit, and then we'll <laughs> wrap things up. Sure. Well, let me. I, I so I had some remarks prepared, but I'll just I, very very briefly. Um, yeah. Well, I, you know, as you noted I, in in preparation, you know, there are a lot of people who are in much consternation right now because we haven't really seen anything except the Higgs. Every other thing which has been tested, uh, every other model which extends beyond the standard model has failed miserably. Um, 
Uh, it's the it's the interesting side things that have been discovered, like the pentaquark, which is at an LHC experiment, which was not expected necessarily to be visible, uh, to be seen uh, uh, in that experiment. Um, but nevertheless, which is really exciting um, for those of us who actually like lower energy phenomena than 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 are tested at the LHC. Mm-hmm. Um, but these people are so so frustrated. I think part of the frustration is the fact that yeah, this was built to be able to see. This stuff, and they've put all their money, all their eggs in this basket. And um, I don't know that there's an existential issue with, oh my goodness, you know, the god that I've worshipped all along, you know, the the god of this the, of this physics beyond the standard model um, is is not showing up. Uh, you know, Dagon has fallen. You know, or whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if that's the kind of thing that's really going on with all of them. I know there are some. Well, yeah, or, I should have mentioned that. That yeah, if you look at like the physics blogosphere or what have you, you'll see, yeah. you'll see this sort of, I, this sort of growing restlessness, the ringing of the hands. Yeah, what, what, yeah. It's mostly. We should though, have seen be, supersymmetry by now. We yeah, haven't seen it. We should have seen. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I think supersymmetry is just wrong. <laughs> I just don't think it. I, yeah. I, I don't think there's any. I mean, I I, I disbelieve. I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical about it because there's not even a hint, hmm. really, of the, of this, and it, it just seems really, really far fetched. Um, as opposed to the Higgs, which was designed to reduce the number of free parameters, the, the supersymmetry, supersymmetry as, as one of these, there are also uh, oddball things called technicolor and things like that. Yeah. Um, they they introduce a wide, a huge number of new parameters into the mix. It just seems aesthetically unpleasing to me. Yeah, to be fair, uh, supersymmetry, um, uh, again, I don't have a dog in this hunt. I'm not a particle physicist, but um, from what I understand from my from my limited reading on this, sup- the, the reason supersymmetry is so popular is, first of all, it's this idea that you have these uh, other particles out there that are the super partners of all the the known particles of the standard model. Um, they're a lot more massive, which is why we haven't seen them yet, because they take a lot of energy to produce. And they also have lots of their um, properties reversed from the known particles. So they're sort of almost like mirror images. So for each boson in the standard model, there's a corresponding fermion and vice versa. Um, and the idea that this is so appealing to some is that um, it can help uh, explain some of the puzzling features of the standard model, like why the particles are also light, particularly the Higgs boson, when certain calculations that are when that you do on um, within the context of the model would suggest that they ought to be a lot heavier. Like, for example, the Higgs ought to be way, way more massive, many orders of magnitude more massive than it is. Um, but if you bring in supersymmetry, these additional particles come in and save the day by canceling out the uh, the quantum field corrections or what have you that that make the Higgs boson or other particles really massive and squeeze them down to a mass like what we observe. So at least, to be fair, that's what they there's some kind of motivation for for postulating this but on the other hand as you said it does produce a lot more free parameters mm-hmm. so um it, um there's all there's these different camps out there and you mentioned some other ones mm-hmm. but i just wanted to uh just uh bring that up for the sake yeah. of because i thought it was kind of interesting but yeah 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 <clears throat> well so i mean this, the idea of of new physics in general simply is uh brought 
the, the the possibility of new physics and new physics is kind of a strange name for it. Um, but you know, this, the standard model does predict a number of things. And as you say, the Higgs, you know, is very, very light compared to where it ought to be. So that, that people are, people think there's got to be an explanation for that. Um, and, and supersymmetry is one way of dealing with it. Um, but, uh, you know, the standard model also predicts a bunch of other things like particular decay ratios of certain particles into one final state versus another. Um, and as experiments become more and more and more precise, these predictions are more and more sorely tested. And in some cases, very much so, so that the model might require something outside the standard model to explain it. And so part of the search for new physics is the search for things that the standard model can't explain. Um, and that can be done at the LHC, but interestingly, it can also be done at my experiment. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for different things and, 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 and for different kinds of new physics, you know, we are probably the world's best experiment for some kinds of new physics. Uh, we wouldn't do well with supersymmetry, uh, but there are things like additional Higgses that we could see um, uh, in uh, particularly innovative ways. So we can get creative and, and, and actually study new physics at, at a multitude of experiments. Um, anyway, you know, when people get all bent out of shape over the fact that they haven't seen something um, partly, I think it's probably related to just the fact that they've put their whole life into this study mm -hmm. and they're coming up dry, mm -hmm. um, which I, it's understandable. Um, I don't think we're going to see, I, I really don't think we're going to see something. I, I'm guessing if we see something new at the LHC, it's going to be of a variety that actually doesn't hit any of these models, Okay, but it's going to be something unexpected. That's, that typically seems to be how things go. Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not one who who is well enough versed to be able to say what's the likelihood of doubling the energy getting us, you know, that much more likelihood of being able to see some, you know, some of these supersymmetric particles. I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not sure I could say one way or the other. I tend to be skeptical about it. Um, well, if history is yeah. any guide, every time we built the new accelerator and bumped up the energy, we found something new. That's true. So maybe that that will streak will continue. Maybe not. Right. Right. Uh, maybe so. Maybe so. Yep. Okay. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, we should uh, moving towards the end of the show here. I think um, Charles, I asked something about uh, the as far as trying to find new things at bigger energy, this new big collider, this great collider in China. So what do you think about that? Do you think we should be putting absurd amounts of money into these big experiments? And I don't mean that in a uh, disparaging thing. I think these things are cool, and there's certainly good reasons to try to build them. But do you think that uh, there's a case to be made that maybe we should focus our efforts elsewhere and other more what uh, some might call more practical problems, and I'm being very much tongue-in-cheek here in, in both of those extreme angles here, deliberately. Um, and Or do you even reject that dichotomy? Uh, well, I'd, uh, uh, I would reject the dichotomy. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd start by challenging the notion that re research needs to produce profit uh, in order to be worthy. I mean, I'm fine with more knowledge as uh, sufficient justification for projects like these. Um, as for what practical benefits might come out of something like this, I, I really don't know. Uh, 
what I will do, I'll, I'll, I'll quote at a small amount of length uh, from uh, that same Popular Science article that I criticized earlier. It, was a, it's a, it is actually a very good article. So, um, In an eloquent speech to the U.S. Department of Commerce in 1966, the theoretical physicist and then Phillips Research Director, H.G.B. Casimir, uh, pointed out that virtually all of the great discoveries of the 19th and 20th centuries came from curiosity-driven research. The transistor emerged from the quantum theory of solids, not from a desire to build computers and televisions. Radio waves were not discovered by men in government-directed laboratories in order to connect the world together with better, better communication systems, but by uh, Heinrich Hertz, a man whose overriding concern was for the beauty of physics. Uh, in his speech, Casimir went on to list many of the great innovations of the mid-20th century, from nuclear power to automobile starter motors, and point out that none of them came about as the result of some kind of pragmatic process of innovation. The light bulb, as the saying goes, was not invented through research and development on the candle. Uh, as for uh, particle physics and what we might expect, uh, I'll, I'll just do this. Here's what I'll, I'll do. Uh, so Fermilab, um, which for any listeners who don't know, is a particle physics uh, facility near Chicago, uh, has published a very handy uh, list of practical benefits that have come from basic physics research. Uh, so we'll just uh, post a link to that uh, fact sheet in the show notes. Uh, so ways that our quality of life and ability to care for each other have been enhanced by basic physics like this includes cancer therapy, uh, medical imaging technology, better safety devices for nuclear power plants, medical research, and the World Wide Web, which enables our listeners to have an improved quality of life by hearing our podcast. Woohoo! Woohoo, indeed. <laughs> no further justification required. <laughs> That's the best argument I've heard. Yeah. <laughs> Let's build more colliders. Can I? Can I want? I do want to say one thing, just just to look at issues of scale here. Um, what you uh, you quoted the price of the LHC as nine billion dollars? Is that right? And I think that's not even counting like the the the, the operational cost and things. Oh, sure, like, the yeah. operational cost is over and above. But, yeah. Well, nine billion dollars is is the same cost as as four and a half stealth bombers. Yeah. Where's the benefit? Indeed. What is the better benefit? Um, the, and the cost of other scientific research is is significantly less. I, I'm, it must be said. Um, but if if we if we look at the research budgets of of science, uh, you know, of, of of departments of science or whatever the equivalent is in 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 various countries, it's so small compared to defense compared to welfare programs compared to lots of things um so when we're talking about i mean we we sort of go googly-eyed at nine billion dollars but it's a drop in the bucket for most advanced nations um and and again mm -hmm. to not to beat the drum so too hard it's part of the reasons why these nations are advanced technologically, why the standard of living is, is, is less than so, is because of the, the, the innovation that has been driven by basic science research and applied science research. Um, so we've got to, be, we've got to be careful when we start nickel and diming, I mean, or billion, <laughs> billion dollaring and billion dollaring or whatever you might call. You know, we start niggling about these numbers as though they're really that meaningful and as though the benefits just aren't immense. 
I, you know, I don't argue. I argue, generally speaking, I argue for science on the basis that I would argue for funding for arts. Mm -hmm. um, it's a human endeavor. Sure. It's an endeavor that enriches the human community. Um, and you may not my, like my flavor of research. Um, that's fine, but I'm I'm happy to say we should be researching fruit flies, and we should be researching cancer, and we should be researching particle physics and astronomy, and 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 the creep of deserts into um, uh, forested lands. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we should be researching all these things because that's what humans do. Yeah, and it it feeds the soul and it feeds the planet. I mean, in some sense. Well said. And by now, listeners, you probably realize that I asked these these questions rhetorically most of the time and i just trying to set up pins to knock them down that's just sort of my style uh <laughs> for 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 asking these well if, usually the questions when i ask them is i probably don't agree is probably more nuanced answer than what may first seem but these kinds of questions do are out there that people are asking about w whether we should be spending money on these things and so it's worth bringing that up and, and talking about it in more nuanced terms like this. So uh, mm -hmm. just, a, just an editorial comment there. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, that's all that I have to talk about, prepared to talk about at least. Um, it's been a great discussion as ever. Um, really appreciate your input. Um, uh, and uh, does anybody have any parting thoughts they want to say uh, about the LAC before we start talking about what's coming next? No, I think I think uh, what I would say is the same thing I, I think I alluded to at the end of our Pluto episode. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for what's up. Stay tuned for what's next. I mean, take a look at, at maybe I could point to some websites. Uh, you know, there's uh, Symmetry Magazine is a good particle physics uh, uh, popular mm. level online journal um, that is uh, free. Uh, they do a, a really fantastic job. Um, and, you know, various of the CERN experiments, if you're interested in them, they've got a big presence on Facebook. Uh, you know, so they will post updates of interesting things. Um, I'm actually part of our outreach team for our uh, the the Bell and Bell Two experiments at, uh, at in Japan, and we've got a Facebook presence, um, and I I'm part of the team that puts together the Facebook posts and whatnot. So we're posting a bunch of stuff about what's going on with the building of our new experiment. Um, but yeah, if you're interested, you know, there's lots of information out there. Uh, we're trying to be very intentional about connecting with the public and. Um, just trying to give a flavor for why we're excited about what we're doing. And, um, and yeah, so uh, Quantum Diaries is another website uh, mm. that, uh, that is written largely, well, exclusively by particle physicists about their daily lives and, and, and what they're studying and um, got a lot of good stuff out there. And those, then, those, then, those two sites have their own links to, to various places. So the info's out there. Um, and it's 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 good to, to to find out what's what's going on in the world, um, at least this little chunk of the world. All right. Yeah, um, and I mentioned I think I mentioned earlier the Particle Fever movie. I think it's really good. Um, it got some limited release. It was on, at least it was on Netflix for a while. It might, yeah, might I still be Amazon there, Prime. or Amazon Prime, or any well, number. You get it, Amazon Prime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I I recommend it. I enjoyed it. It yeah, was it's fun. It was a well made. Uh, mm -hmm. 
little documentary. So, um, okay, uh, Charles, anything you want to add? Uh, nope. Okie doke. All right, then. What's coming up next? What's coming up next? It's my turn. Um, I thought we'd take on an article from Nautilus, which is a relatively new journal that takes a look at big ideas in science from multiple perspectives. Um, The article and I think the issue that we'll be looking at is entitled Why Science Needs Metaphysics. Okay. Yeah, it should be fun. Sounds good. All right. Uh, Well, on that note, uh, we should uh, probably wrap things up. I just wanted to say that the Book of Nature is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Please check out our other podcasts on the network, such as the Christian Humanist Podcast, the Christian Feminist Podcast, Sectarian Review, and another one that I cannot remember. We have so many coming up. But please go to ChristianHumanist.org and search around, and you'll find lots of great stuff on there. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Sue Jimenez. And this is the Dan Dawson on behalf of Todd Pedler and Charles Hackney saying, uh, have a great week until we come up with a great slogan for our podcast. <laughs>